This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. So when we talk about the gospel of Christ, of course it begins in Matthew 1.1, but it's part of a bigger beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my good friend, co-host, James Dolezal. James, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thrilled to be here, as always. One day it won't be as always, Jonathan. I mean, it, it's possible one day, you know, I might miss one and and you'll be alone. But uh, as long as it continues, that's or great. or or you won't be glad to be here. Uh, it, that that's a possibility you too. Know, I have not I haven't thought of that, but that's because I love being here. So yeah, I know it's hard to imagine, but. Today, uh, we are both uh, glad to be here, particularly because we're here with a really good friend of ours, Gary Snicker, who is Distinguished Professor of Old Testament at Cairn University. We used to have the privilege of being in the same hallway with Gary and seeing him on a daily basis, and now we have to settle for this. But Gary, thanks for joining us today. We're here to talk about your, uh, your book on the Pentateuch called The Torah Story. So thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me, James and uh, Jonathan. It's really great to be here. So, Gary, we want to talk about the Torah story because there's a new edition of it coming out, and we want to describe to our listeners some of the features of that and really commend it to them. I think both James and I uh, would commend this uh, volume. I've used it in teaching various classes, at least the the previous edition, and uh, can't say enough good about it. But Let's talk just about the not not so much the features of the second edition, but the first edition and the, the whole project. Why refer to the Pentateuch? Because that's what it is. It's a book about the Pentateuch. Why refer to the Pentateuch as the Torah story? What's all what's implied even in the title? Yeah, so the um I'm I'm using the word Torah as an English loan word for for the Hebrew word Torah. And uh, normally that's been translated as law all the way back you know, into the Septuagint, which used the term um, namas, which is law, even before the Christian era. And by referring to the Pentateuch as the law, that's really been the basis of a lot of different stresses and challenges and theological difficulties, especially among uh, Christians and Protestants over these years. So, one of the things, you know, if we stop and even look at the word Torah in Hebrew, it comes from the verb yirah, which if you look in the big dictionaries, it says um, probably it comes from the meaning teach because the same root is different things. So teach or instruction and likely, and this it's so tempting here to do uh, what James Barr says is a total semantic withdrawal of the, of the etymology. So to make that error, because it, in Akkadian, the term tertu has the sense of unrolling the finger to point in the direction, to give someone directions. So it's so tempting to look at the Torah because it's, um, it is instruction. It's Torah in that sense. But to even go further and say, it points the way, it offers directions. 
But in simple terms, the Hebrew term Torah, when it's used in, say, Deuteronomy, it's not used in a legal sense with the legal connotations of law. It's used in the sense of teach this Torah to the up-and-coming generation. So there's that educational sense of learning that goes with it. And then the other thing that um, is part of the title is story. And the Torah, it's a story. And so it's easy to um, kind of go all the way back and the Jewish interpretation of it as law. But, you know, if we think maybe this way, Saul of Tarsus, he might have looked at the Pentateuch as the law. But when he became Paul, the apostle, he didn't need to restudy the book. He just needed to flip it over. It's not just a story encasement of laws. The story is not there just as a function of law. Rather, it's a redemptive story that has instructions in it. So that change in perspective, say, between um, Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Apostle is really what I'm trying to get at with Torah story. It's the thesis of the book is the Torah story is the beginning of the gospel. So that's sort of where the title came from and the gist of the main argument of the book. Right. And I was going to touch on that because you do make that point right at the beginning that this is uh, you're you're looking at this from a whole Bible perspective. You're looking at it from the perspective of understanding God's redemptive purposes in Christ and and how those are in a sense introduced here. Uh, although you're looking at it on its in it, on its own terms as well, but understanding it properly uh, in the context of of, of the whole Bible. Um, so so ha- for your students uh, who who encounter this for the first time, who encounter this perspective, is that a um, have they thought about it that way in general? And and I guess we can infer from that, do most readers of the book think of it that way? Or do you find that you have to really emphasize that point? Well, when the first edition came out, I mean, this was such a different way to look at um, the Pentateuch. So, yeah, it was pretty pushy back then. A lot's changed in the past 15 years. So um, there's a lot more tendency to get past uh, the critical arguments that dominated the day back, you know, when it, when the first edition came out. So no, it's it's not as difficult in that sense because um, when students who are uh, tend to be extremely illiterate of the scriptures, they just read it and it's obvious it's a story. And so it's not a I don't have to make a big argument for it. It's a story. Um, it's right. that's what the Torah is. And so. In, in that sense, no, no, it's not a big. And I should just say really quickly for our listeners that you're using the word story. It is a narrative that's undeniable. You're not you're not by that inferring it's a uh, it's untrue. Uh, it didn't happen. You know, sometimes we use the word story in that way. I, I know that's not how you mean it, but just just to be clear for our listeners that that that's not what you're saying. You're saying it's a narrative. Yeah, a nar- I'm using the word narrative and story identically. Right. And so right. Uh, as an example, all all narratives are interpretations. Um, and so an historical narrative, we can't set that against ideology as though artistic sure. narrative is one thing and ideology is another. I think even small children know this now. All narratives are interpretation. So if we right. say, 
Jesus died. Okay, that's a fact. But the gospel's more than that. It's a narrative interpretation of it. It's that the Christ died for our sins, and he rose again uh, on the third day, according to the scriptures. So any of his enemies who denied the gospel and saw Christ die, they could say, yeah, Jesus died. He's a, um, he's cursed of God. But it it's the gospel's an interpretation of that fact, not just the right. bare historical reality. Gary, early on in your book, you discussed narrative and certain features of it. Um, and that was one, Jonathan beat me to it, uh, that narrative itself is a theological interpretation, not just a, a bare listing of kind of naked facts uh, chronologically arranged. You you say that the end of a story, the telos, gives it its meaning. Um, this is one of the claims you make early in the book. And that has a just a, an intuitive plausibility about it. But I want to ask, with regard to Torah in particular, what is the end and what are the ends? Some of this dovetails back to what Jonathan said about the gospel, but I wonder if you could just kind of spell that out. Can I say it plurally? What are the ends of Torah story? Um, and then how does that, in fact, give the narrative its meaning? Yeah, I'm not sure I would use the word give it its meaning, but I, I know what you're saying. It it puts it in focus. I might okay. um I got this from uh Aristotle actually that the uh, use the right word, tell us that the um the ending is the destiny of the narrative. But a a a, a book like Genesis ends with a big expectation um for the Judah king. And the Torah as a five-part story. Uh, it ends with, right, they're on the threshold. They're looking across the Jordan River. I mean, we can still use that language today. It's so poetic. They're looking across the Jordan River at the land of promise that God had sworn to their ancestors. So we we have that sense of it's an unfinished story. So in that sense, um, when we talk about Genesis, then Genesis has a beginning and an end in the book of Genesis. It's a legitimate book. Um, and Genesis has an ending with Torah. Uh, that is, it's it's a legitimate, right? We open with a choice between the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And the people stand at the Jordan River and Moses calls them today, choose between life and death. And at the same time, um, the larger argument I'm making, which kind of you packed it into the question, is Genesis is the beginning of the gospel story, the meta narrative that comes to its high point in the teaching, death, and resurrection of our Lord. So when we talk about the gospel of Christ, of course it begins um, in Matthew 1.1, but it's part of a bigger beginning that starts, Barashit Elohim bara. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning of the gospel story. So you're you're you you brought up a couple things there, Gary, that I wanted to touch on. One was the the telos of the whole Pentateuch of the whole Torah story, and it's it's taking you to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that that is properly speaking the telos that we need to keep in mind. But we also have these sort of um, other endings that we get along the way that are sort of placeholders. And 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 that's what I wanted to probe a little bit more. So you you even in the way you approach the whole thing, you're looking at the Pentateuch as 
in some sense, a single narrative, a single story. And yet there is an integrity to Genesis as a book and Exodus as a book and Leviticus as a book and Numbers as a book and Deuteronomy as a book. And so how do you how do you see the interplay between those? Um, you know, typically if we're going to sit down and do a Bible study in our homes, we're going to pick a book of the Bible. Generally, we're not going to pick the Pentateuch, uh, although maybe we should. But how do you see each of the endings of the books, each of the sort of telosses of the books um, playing into the whole. And the whole is part of a bigger whole, which is the gospel. Yeah. So it's it's a great question, Jonathan. It's a it's a serial. Um, so these five books are not just like five one-offs. They've always been related. So there's a sense of like when we watch a serial story, each new episode opens it up. So we can read Exodus or Leviticus as a book, but when we read Exodus as a book, we can see that there's something already before it, right? That Israel, all the um, tribes of Israel, the 12 namesakes, they are fruitful and they multiply and they fill the land of Egypt, which creates this problem for the Egyptians and it creates a problem for the Israelites because of the anti-Semitic response to the fruitfulness of Israel. So that language there, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land, anybody that's read Genesis even one time um, knows that's not an original statement in Genesis, uh, excuse me, in Exodus. That's that's from Genesis. It comes up both in the Adam story and the Noah story. So it's God that's multiplying the Israelites. And so when Pharaoh arrogantly stands against the population explosion of Israel, he's standing against God, a God who we know from Genesis opens every single womb, that somebody who's barren, they're not barren because just of medical details, they're barren because um, God's not been pleased to open their womb yet. And when they have children, no matter how we explain it, it's because God said, yes. Uh, uh, and so, in other words, the, the way I've chosen to say it uh, in this book is that Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're all Genesis-shaped. And I mean, we could actually flip that around, though. I'm not really sure if that's actually true. I always wonder, is, is Genesis Torah-shaped? But without needing to sort all that out, it's very easy to make a case that Exodus through Deuteronomy are Genesis-shaped. And the, the, the story's even bigger than that. And so... Uh, all the other stories in the Old Testament and the prophets and the uh, Psalms, they're all constantly um, working on Torah. And many of them are jumping between each of the books as though they're one story. Gary, I think that's going to be surprising to some readers, even your suggestion there, uh, that Genesis is Torah-shaped. You appeal to uh, Aristotle's poetics in terms of how to read uh, a telos and its relation to the whole. And there is a certain sense in which in Aristotelianism, the end or the goal at which something aims is in fact part of the causal explanation of its motion toward that end. Um, now, indulge my eggheadedness for a second. Um, but I think if you bring that to if you bring that to the study of the Pentateuch, then what's happening in Deuteronomy or, or or of the other intervening books between that and Genesis, in fact, is part of why Genesis. 
Uh, so that because I think the temptation is to think that Genesis was intended to be a standalone, and then things didn't quite go right or pan out, and so these other things kind of get tacked on in addition, as opposed to being the aim all along. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, that's a really great observation. But so, for example, if we chose a reading point, let's choose two reading points for Genesis. Um, so one reading point, we'll we'll sit in the wilderness, just like you've said. We're in the wilderness with the children of Israel. So they're reading about Esau trading his birthright for red soup. And so here the children of Israel are being pushed out of Edom. They have to go around because Edom won't even let them pass through. They offer no hospitality. They show up with a large army. And so Israel has to go around this red land with this red-haired people. And so the book of Genesis, then, it it it's uh, we might call it um, ethnic humor today, but it's it's political humor in a sense that it's making fun of the soup people, um, the people who descended from the soup man. And so then, if we if we step out a little broader, um, we can kind of go to the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah and read back. And so, the ancestor of Ephraim and Manasseh, but especially Ephraim, the the large, powerful tribe in the northern kingdom, they descend from Joseph. And uh, the people of Jerusalem and Judah, they descend from Judah. So these two competing kingdoms can read uh, Genesis and see this tension, in a sense, between Joseph and Judah, the one who sells him into slavery. But it's even more complicated than that, because the tribe of Benjamin— naturally would go with Joseph, right? Because their their mom is Rachel. But Benjamin doesn't. Benjamin goes with Judah and stays in the south. And so here you have uh, Joseph, the ruler of all the kingdoms and a ruler of Egypt, and the brothers stand before him, and he's trying to take Benjamin away from the family. And it's Judah that stands up to him and says, no, I speak for the family. I made a deal with my dad. Let me talk to you. And so you see Judah saves Benjamin from this tyrannical Joseph who's throwing people in prison. Who knows what he's going to do? So those are two reading points that we can read Genesis from and see that it's um, it, it, it's more than just Torah-shaped. I mean, it's the scriptures are interrelated with it. There's a foreshadowing that is an intra-Old Testament foreshadowing and, and fulfillment of a sort. Um, is that right? Is this? Yeah, and so if I might take a moment. I'll, I'll play off of this exact point. I um for the second edition, I did a whole bunch of things. But my 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 dear wife, uh, Sherry, she's proofreading the second edition. She has this very serious look. She says, "We need to talk." And so she had just proofread uh, a book that I wrote over the past number of years: Old Testament use of Old Testament. And so. She wasn't as familiar with Torah story, raising the kids back in those years. So she's proofreading Torah story. And she thinks that what I've done is I've kind of slipped off the edge and started dumping all of this Bible use of the Bible stuff into my textbook because I sort of had just got excited. See, she remembers when I was doing my dissertation, probably like you and everybody else that does dissertations, and we bore everyone, like the whole world, shaped like our thesis statement. Guilty. And we're, we're, we're teaching it in Sunday school, we're preaching from the pulpit about it, we're telling our neighbors about it while we're fixing their lawnmowers. I mean, we just talk about it. And so my wife thinks that I did this. I had to pull down 
the first edition of Torah Story and say, no, no, in each chapter, there's a little extra part called uh, Another Look. And there, after kind of going through each section of the Pentateuch, especially go with connections, show how later biblical authors are reading this part of Torah. So in other words, that's not something new to the second edition because I've been studying it. That's something because of this uh, research on the Bible's use of the Bible, I might have strengthened it, but that's always been there. That's kind of the part of the uh, different approach that I took in Torah story, reading it as a story that begins everything, but then seeing how the rest of the Bible is sort of a commentary on Torah as we go along. So, Gary, maybe that's an, a good place for us to transition and talk about some of the other features of the book as a whole, and then and then to the second edition specifically. So one of the things that you mentioned is that at the end of each chapter, you try to tie in other biblical passages that connect some of the, to some of the themes or some of the ideas that are introduced in this section. Um, what are some of the other things that when you set out to put this together as an introduction and a guide to the Pentateuch that you wanted to include uh, and 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 perhaps even that that students have found particularly helpful because I really we really want James and I both really want our listeners to think about picking up this book and and studying the Pentateuch for themselves. I I have to say it is designed as a textbook, but it could just as easily be used outside of a, a classroom setting in a Bible study or even personally. And I, I have I can say that because I've used it that way in various settings with my family and others, and so. Um, so, so what are some of the features of it? What are what are people going to find when they when they pick up this this textbook that you've you've tried to integrate into your discussion of the Pentateuch? So, one of the things people will find is it's this emphasis on a narrative approach. If you think back, Jonathan or James, when we had our biblical studies classes over the years, many of my teachers were trying to prove the plausibility of the historicity of biblical narratives. And so we kind of walked away from those classes thinking, oh yeah, the Bible might be true. But we didn't actually dig into, since the Bible is true, let's study the stories as scripture. So I think that, you know, when I first started working on all this, it's my first year teaching, and I was um, I was actually teaching Romans. And I was really struggling to kind of help my students understand how Paul's reading the Old Testament. And I was coming out of the library one day there in Tennessee, and it was like, boom, it's like it hit me on the top of the head, like, and it seems so pedestrian now. Paul's not interpreting the Old Testament. He's just studying his Bible. Like, it's his Bible. There is no New Testament. He's just reading the gospel. And so I went to my um, my boss and I asked if I could teach Pentateuch in the spring. He said, sure, um, but you're going to have to do it on an overload. I'm not going to pay you. I'm like, that's fine. Because I'm thinking I'm going to like teach Pentateuch one semester and figure this whole thing out. And so that sort of sucked me in, in a sense where I realized there was a lot more to do to understand Torah than just teaching the class for one semester. And it, um, uh, you know, it's very committed to, as Brevard Child says, to reading the Old Testament as scripture, each book. And that's that. That's what was missing. Um, and so maybe a way to say it, uh, when I turned in my manuscript to my editor at the time, uh, Verlin 
Verbrugge, um, he says to me, well, you don't have very much here about JEDP. Uh, you only really talk about it in one paragraph in this aside in the introduction. I said, that's right. This isn't a book either about critical theories or against critical theories. This is a book about the Torah. I'm reading the Torah as what it is, a story. And so that's really, I think, what I'm inviting students into is, or any reader, you're, you're right, it is set up like a textbook. Anybody can read this book. Um, to say, you know, how can I read the Torah? Uh, and your question earlier is right. Um, the historicity of the scriptures is very important. But we also need to take the next step and say, because they're true, let's read them and engage them as Christian scripture, um, as narrative in this case. So that's, I think, um, the, the larger goal to get at. And if you think back to all the Pentateuch courses you might have taken, if your experience was like mine, um, I had some good Pentateuch courses and some really bad ones, but what the dominant theme of almost all of them was is why the source critical theory known as JEDP was not true. <laughs> So, like, right. that's brilliant. So what? Right, right. So you're so one of the things they're not going to find when they come to this is a is a huge discussion on higher criticism or um, the uh, composition of the of the text the, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's not that that's not important. But in other words, the Bible's important first. Then we study the critical things. So it's it's flipping the academic priorities from sort of blowing a whole semester talking about all that, not even talking about the Bible. Right, right. So they're not going to find that. What they are going to find is a discussion of the way in which the narrative unfolds, what that's teaching, how that fits into the larger uh, the larger teaching of Scripture and God's redemptive purposes. Ultimately, although, although you know, it's not a book on Romans or a book on the Gospels, but you know that's where you're going. Um with all of it. And th and that's actually clear in the text. Yeah, it's you're, not a book about Romans. Clear about that. But I think that students will be able to read right. Romans better if they know Torah, and some of those connections to Romans are built into the book. So maybe we can add, early on in right. the book you orient readers a couple introductory chapters before you get into specific books and uh one of your chapters is called an apprenticeship uh in the Torah. And why do you describe it as an apprenticeship? And maybe I could ask this question from being those who have tasted and seen and have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, why do we need an apprenticeship in the Torah or maybe even the old covenant, uh, which is at least part of what's going on in Torah story? Um, why an apprenticeship in the old covenant, given that the better covenant is here? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. But I mean, nobody who followed Christ or wrote parts of the New Testament would even think that was a good question. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Right? Because no, none of those folks in the earliest Christian circles. Sorry. So, so just hold on. Gary said it was a good question. But he says James, Jesus and all of his you, followers would have thought it was a you dumb question. Jesus and the apostles. Yeah. Not a terrible, a terrible question. question. They just would be but, like, what you know, are you anyway. talking about? Like. If you want to study the gospel, you study the Torah and the prophets. It's, I mean, for them, there was 
no need for a New Testament. I mean, there was just the Torah and the prophets bore witness to Christ. And that I think that the New Testament emerges from that. So, but yes, it is a really good point because we are so tilted toward just reading the New Testament. But I think any New Testament writer, if we could ask them, they'd be embarrassed if we um, were only reading the New Testament, but not reading the Torah. Uh, they would say, that's not what my book is for. You, you, you've misunderstood. So you're going to lead readers in uh, through an apprenticeship. This book is the apprenticeship that you're proposing. Is that is that right? Yeah, an apprenticeship is uh, it's a, maybe an old fashioned term, but it's um, oh, it's I like it. That, <laughs> I do too. Uh, it's one that um, I've kind of imagined would be the ideal for either um, discipleship or a student, because apprentice is not just learning facts. An apprentice is learning to do something. And the core of any good apprenticeship is humility. It's to humble oneself to, and we all need to do this, uh, even if we're experts in these things. We need to humble ourselves when we come to the scriptures. And we, we need to ask about obedience and serving God and serving others, and not just think of the scriptures as a place for theological debate and theological argument. Although all of that is really important, and that's hopefully one. <laughs> Gary, um, this has been a joy. I wish we had more time. I know we could talk uh, Pentateuch and talk Torah story uh, for even longer than we have, but we really appreciate your time, and I uh, hope it goes without saying, appreciate your friendship very much and your labors in the Lord. Just very grateful for you. It's a it's a delight, Jonathan. I'm really great grateful to spend this time with you and James. Um, it's excellent. James, I know that we both uh, hold Gary and his work in high esteem, and uh, that's why we were so um, excited to welcome him on to talk about the second edition of the Torah Story. We have seen firsthand. Uh, students benefit from the first edition, and we know enough about what's going on to to be able to commend this to our listeners as well. I mean, over the years, his students have been our students. Uh, and so the questions that uh, they're learning from Gary at, to to ask and answer are the ones they're bringing into our classes uh, as well. And so we can just see that he's he's really given them a, a firm and and even a deep grounding um, in the in the message of the Pentateuch, uh, what I appreciate is is his you know a kind of canonical read of scripture that he says right at the outset that he's reading the Pentateuch as Christian scripture. Yeah, and I think that that's you know how you know how Old Testament scholarship, well, New Testament scholarship can be this way too. It it kind of it gets very specialized into kind of a silo approach where. People, people aren't even. It's almost an, a stretch to say my expertise is Pentateuch. It's more of a I'm a Leviticus guy or I'm a Deutero Isaiah guy or something like mm -hmm. that. I really like uh, that Gary is thinking of this in terms of its interrelationship with itself, but then also how it really finds its culmination in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that I think that readers are going to benefit from that immensely. But also to say that Gary's a careful reader of detail. So it's not just that he's kind of giving a broad 
everything points to Jesus, he's he's also getting down into the weeds of the of the text and of the sort of connection points, the co- the the joints, so to speak, of the Pentateuch itself. Sometimes when um, people in our circles talk about finding Christ in the Old Testament, they do it in ways that it either seems impossible to replicate or or doesn't quite stand up under close scrutiny. It's it's great. It's a great application, and it's it's uh, you know in that sense, it's good to it's always good to think about Jesus, but 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 it doesn't quite have the integrity that that this does it, he's he's really as you said gotten into the details and 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 shows at a deep level how all of these things point you forward and uh, for that alone it's worth it but also if you're just unfamiliar with this part of your bible um like he said it, it's um it's something that the apostles would have been very familiar with and and that Jesus builds upon frequently and so if you're not familiar with this part of your bible this is a pretty good place to start. It is a textbook, but I would say don't be put off by that because it's accessible. It's pretty easy to use and uh, and very readable. And so you really could pick it up for personal study and um, or for or for family study or anything like that. And I, I I think I think readers should know that this is a book that works in a classroom well. You've used it in the classroom, uh, and yet it's also a book that if you are making a personal study of the Pentateuch, um, it, it's hard to think how you do much better uh, than using this book as a guide through that material. Uh, maybe quickly, he says it's not a commentary. It's not a verse by verse commentary. It's not a kind of mini one volume commentary. It's he's really he's really interested in the progression of the narrative and particularly the episodes and the connections that advance that uh, progression. But I th- I think it would give readers a sense of the unity of the whole, the progression of the whole. So I'm I'm looking forward to uh, our follow-up talk with Gary uh, in a future episode um, because this is this is a great yes, project. Yes, this was just a, a, a taste. We knew ahead of time that we were going to probably need two sessions with Gary just because of our rapport with him, our, our, our history with him, and also uh, the, the depth of the subject. So we look forward to that. And we we thank all of you who have been listening to us thus far. If you know someone who would be helped by Theology on the Go, please pass it along to them. If you're able to donate, we rely on donations. You can make those donations to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals at either alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. Also, if you'd like the opportunity to win a copy of this second edition, you can go to placefortruth.org, go to the Theology on the Go link, enter your information there. And there'll be a drawing for some of the copies that we've been given by the publisher. As always, we thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, 
visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful.